Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. We are diving into Ephesians. And friends, we have been in the book of Ephesians off and on all the way back since the spring. And I've said this so many times, but I believe it with all my heart. The word of God is far deeper than it is wide. And I hope my prayer that is that as we walk through this letter, this profound letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus that has been circulated really all over Asia Minor in the early days of the church and has been read by hundreds of millions of people throughout history as one of the the foremost documents of the Christian faith. As we dive into this letter again and we, we come down the home stretch, I hope even as I take us through these verses, you'll begin to see and glean different ways that you can approach God's word. How, how you can slow down and what studying God's word looks like and what it means to, to pause and consider why. Why did Paul use that word there? What analogy is Paul trying to get across to us? What is he actually trying to say? And, and so today we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 6, which is the last ch- uh, chapter of the letter of Ephesians. And we're going to look at verse 10 through 20. I'm going to read this for us, the whole section, but we're not going to hit all of it today. We're just going to hit the first part, and Lord willing, we'll finish up next week, but no promises. No promises on that. But this entire passage is on the armor of God. And as I was studying this passage this week, what struck me is, man, there's just too much here to hit in one sermon. There's so much that Paul is trying to say. And so we're going to read this together, then we're going to dive into it. Starting in verse 10, it'll also be on the side screens if you want to follow along. Paul says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, not just a piece of it, all of it, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Paul is interested in you standing firm. (laughs) Says the word stand about six times. Verse 14, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, that is the church, praying for the church. And Paul says also, pray for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains. Right here, that's how we know Paul is writing this letter from prison. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Friends, is that not amazing? Paul is chained to a wall in a Roman prison cell. And he's writing this letter with chains on his arms and on his legs. And he's writing this letter to the churches and he's saying, pray for me. And if all the things that Paul could say, hey, I need some prayer for some stuff right now, you'd think he might mention like, can you pray that they take the chains off me and let me go? Maybe that would be at the top of Paul's prayer list. Uh, guys, if you think of me, pray for me. I'm in chains in a Roman prison cell. Please pray that they let me go. Pray I get out of here. No, he doesn't even mention that. He just says, I'm in chains because I'm an ambassador of the gospel. I'm a messenger of the gospel. So pray for me that I don't shrink back, that I would declare it boldly. Friends, it was the gospel that got him into that mess. <laughs> and he doesn't say, pray that I get out of this mess. He says, pray that I don't shy away from this because I think if I keep saying these things, they're going to kill me. It's not going to be just chains on my arms. It's going to be a Roman cross like my Savior. And Paul wasn't wrong. But you see here at the very end of this letter, he says, finally, everything's been building to this moment. Everything's been building up to this crescendo of the letter for Paul. And he goes, hey, guys, I could use any analogy here, any metaphor to kind of sum up everything that I've said and what you're gonna experience moving forward. I mean, Jesus was a big fan of parables and metaphors. Paul used you know, parables and metaphors throughout his letters. You know, Paul could have used a metaphor of a vineyard or, you know, of a, of a sower, of a farmer sowing seeds in the field. There's a lot of different metaphors he could have chosen from, but as he's thinking about, okay, what should I leave the, the church in Ephesus and all these young Christians, what, what should I leave them with? Because what I say last they're gonna remember the most. So I've really gotta make it stick. And if there's one thing that I, I wanna make sure that they get, I, I wanna use a metaphor of armor. I want them to know that as soon as they step into this new life with Christ, man, it's a fight on their hands. Because before, the enemy didn't even care about them. Didn't even care, you were spiritually dead. In your sin, you were no threat to the enemy. But as soon as you come to life through faith in Jesus Christ, suddenly you become a light to the world. Suddenly you begin to shine the truth and the light of who Christ is and what salvation looks like and what restoration looks like in your own life. And suddenly the enemy is now coming against you. Paul says, I want to leave you with this. I... I think about it like, like Paul's a general, right? The leader. I think about the closing scenes of one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. Let's go, man. Any Braveheart fans in the room? 
You remember, right? He's on the horse. He's stirring up the, the Scots and he's trying to stir up their courage against a much larger enemy force that has way more troops and way more firepower. And you remember what he says at the very end. He's like, they can take our lives, but they'll never take our... That was so weak. William Wallace would be ashamed. They'll never take our freedom. And they're like, yeah. Paul's like, I'm in chains. I'm writing this to you from a Roman prison and I'm trying to let you know there's conflict, there's resistance. When you begin to step into your new life in Jesus Christ, the enemy is going to come against you. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Friends, if you're in this room today and you're in a struggle, you're in a fight, you're up against it, you're up to your neck, you're facing addiction, anxiety, depression, anger, besetting sins, whatever it may be, if you're in the fight, friends, it's a sign that you're alive. The battle is proof that you're still breathing. Come on, somebody. The battle is proof that you're still breathing. If you're in the fight, it's a sign that you're alive. It's a sign that, man, God is doing something amazing in your life. And the battle doesn't define you. The fight doesn't define you. The struggle doesn't define you. You are defined by grace. You're defined by the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is stirring up the church in Ephesus and he says, friends, you need armor from heaven. <laughs> the armor of God to enter this fight, to enter this battle. Do not, Paul says, do not bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> Spiritually speaking. Because you want to show up prepared. So the title for my message today, The Armor of God Part 1, is simply this, The Aim of Evil. The Aim of Evil. Paul says this word evil, an enemy, over and over again in this passage of Scripture. And I think it's so important for us. I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to, to, to peel back the curtain. He says, you know, if you actually want to stand against the evil one on the evil day, against all temptation, against the struggles and the fight that you're going to face in this life, if you want to make it through, then you need to know his plan. You know, I haven't done that. I haven't really put you all through this too much this year, but I'm just going to use a Georgia Bulldog analogy real quick. We are number one right now. We're about to beat Florida next week. Praise Jesus. But here's the deal, right? A great defensive coordinator, what do they do? And Georgia has put together two of the best defenses the last two years that college football has seen. Yeah, I said it and I'll stand by it, okay? Praise God. Here's the deal. It's because we have defensive coordinators and coaches that spend their entire week before a game preparing and studying what? The offense of the opposing team. How the other team is going to attack or try and score touchdowns. So they prepare their defense against the strengths and the weapons of the opposing team. They say, look, when they, when they line up three wideouts on the left, they're going to run right. They do it every time. They try and spread us out. Hey, if they stack two running backs in the back, often they're going to go left. They're going to follow the tight end or whatever it may be. A good defensive coordinator knows the strategy 
of the opposing team. And so Paul, here at the end of his letter, he says, look, we're gonna get to the armor in a minute. Next week, we're gonna talk about what it means to live in the armor of God. But he goes, before we get there, I wanna tell you, I wanna peel back the curtain and talk about the strategy of the enemy. What is the aim of evil? What is the goal of evil in your life? And so we're gonna look at three questions. We're gonna answer three questions from God's word. Number one, what is evil's aim? What's its goal for you? Number two, where is evil aiming? And number three, when will evil strike? Because if you know these three things, what's it going for, where is it aiming, and when's it gonna strike, you know how to stop it. And you won't be perfect. It's not saying you're, you're never gonna fail again or you're never gonna have a bad day or a struggle or a stumble or a fall. But Paul is saying, if you understand what evil is going for, then you'll be more apt and strong to stand against it. I thought about this analogy for us. I went deep sea fishing for the very first time when I was about 10 years old. And we went with some friends of ours when we lived back east to, um, they had a house on the Outer Banks off the shores of North Carolina. And they had a, a deep sea fishing boat. And this family, especially the father of my friend Will, he was really into deep sea fishing competitions. So he would enter all these competitions to try and catch blue marlin. It was a big sport fishing community. Now, he agreed to take us out just for fun. He said, we're not even gonna try and reel in any blue marlin today, but we're gonna go for two of the most delicious fish in the ocean, mahi-mahi and Spanish mackerel. Praise Jesus, the Lord provides. Delicious, mahi-mahi and Spanish mackerel. And he says, you know, here's the technique. First, we, we head out. And we look for a flock of birds, wherever those may be, that are diving into the ocean. We know bait fish are there, and that means larger predatory fish are underneath, and they're going for the bait fish. So we'll head that direction. We'll begin to chum the water with sardines or other things that mahi-mahi and Spanish mackerel like to eat. And he says, but the real key is this. The favorite dish, the favorite food of a mahi-mahi is a young squid. I mean, just irresistible, right? If you're a mahi-mahi and you see one of these, you're a goner, okay? Now, now, here's what struck me as I was looking at this because James says something very interesting. James, who was the brother of Jesus, he wrote a letter and he said this. He said, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. God tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is, check it out, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and the goal of sin is always one thing, death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Every small little 
temptation, every small little lure. It's just one drink. It's just a simple DM, a text message. It's just, man, it's just, you know, putting myself into this situation. It's no big deal, even though that's often led towards destructive things in my life. It's knowing, it's being aware of the lures in your own life that can derail you because even though it looks so innocent, like a baby little squid, you see what those mahi-mahi did not realize when we began to troll our little lures through all the chum and the sardines that were in the water, these rubber little lures that literally looked identical to this right here, what the mahi-mahi did not see or know that inside this little rubber young squid were six hooks. And those hooks were attached to an invisible line that went all the way to a world that the mahi-mahi knew nothing about. Where I was standing on top of a boat with a rod connected to that line that was connected to that rubber squid with six hooks in it. It had no idea that by going after that lure, it was going to become my dinner. It had never once in its life felt threatened by a squid. Honestly, that mahi-mahi had never once in its life even thought about a human. You know what mahi-mahi are on the watch for every day? Sharks. Dolphins. Blue marlins. Other large game fish that love to eat mahi-mahi. So a mahi-mahi knows where the danger is. Even we as humans, we know where the danger is. We know certain things to avoid. That's why we're, hey, if I'm at the top of a high tower, I'm not going to stand right on the edge. I'm not going to walk in front of a moving vehicle. I'm not going to do something that's going to put my life in harm's way. We avoid dangerous things too. The problem is this, is that evil and temptation, it never presents itself in a way that doesn't look enticing. It never presents itself in a way initially that even looks harmful. It's like a lure. That's what James is saying. It's enticing you. It's something you're not afraid of, you're not worried about, but it's the first step in a direction that attaches you to something and someone in some place that wants to devour you. Friends, the aim of evil, I looked up every scripture regarding Satan and the devil and evil in the New Testament. And here are some descriptions that the Bible gives us. Evil lies to us. It wants to steal from us, destroy us, accuse us, devour us, shame us. It's scheming to bring us down. It wants to entice, tempt, deceive, injure, blind, hurt, distort, harm, discourage, distract, exploit, weakness, confuse, and ultimately kill us. I mean, just, just a few verses that I can share to show you what I'm, I'm saying. John 8, 44 to 45. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer. The devil was a murderer from the beginning when he was enticing Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He knew that the moment they ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that they would die. His intent was not just to sell them on a piece of fruit. His intent was to kill them. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. He is a liar and the father of lies. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came, says Jesus, that they, that you may have life and have it abundantly. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, even if our gospel is veiled, that means the people that hear the good news of Jesus can't understand it or see it. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are spiritually dead. The God of this age, that is the enemy, that is evil, that is Satan. The God of this age has blinded their minds. Blinded their minds so they cannot see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Revelation 12 says the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Friends, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, be alert. There is, there is a very real spiritual world around you that influences you, not just on a personal and individual level. Second Corinthians 4 tells us that the enemy is actually the God of this age. It influences us on a cultural level, a cultural level. I, I thought about two different quotes that I read this week as I was studying this, and I, I want to read these to us because I think both these guys nail it. One is by C.S. Lewis, and he says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Uh, that's not real. That's superstitious stuff, right? One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist. That means I don't believe it unless I can see it. Or a magician. That's someone who's obsessed with the supernatural, looking for the supernatural everywhere. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So that's C.S. Lewis. And then a systematic theologian, John Frame, he said it like this. Part of the problem is that modern people have lost touch with the supernatural. They have become skeptical of any world or any beings beyond those of our senses. I'll pause right there. It's kind of like we're mahi-mahi. Welcome to church. We can't even conceive of a world outside of the ocean that's just above us or just on the other side of the land where we're swimming, that is filled with an entirely other existence. We can't even conceive of it. All we can conceive of is sharks and blue marlin and squid and sardines, right? John Frame goes on to say, he goes, we're skeptical of any world beyond our senses. Christians at least believe in God, but they have absorbed enough of the anti-supernaturalism Learned a new word today, didn't you? Anti-supernaturalism of their culture, that belief in anything more seems foreign to them. Belief in God is hard enough. Why add further difficulty by bringing Satan and angels and demons into it? 
The problem is, it's all throughout the New Testament. There is the reality of a spiritual world. And C.S. Lewis says, look, you don't need to get obsessive over it. But the things in your life, the, the lures in your life, the, the evil influence in all of our lives comes through three different avenues. First John explains it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the culture you live in is pressing a narrative into your life. It's pressing a narrative into all of our lives. A narrative culturally, whether you live in America or Africa or China or Russia, it does not matter. The culture of your age, of all of our age, there is a reality in which Christians must say, this world is not my home. I'm not just trying to keep up with the Joneses. I'm not just going for the good life. I'm not just free to be my own sovereign ruler. There is a king in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ, and I'm here to follow him, to serve him, to love others. And I'm called to live in such a way that looks different and shines as a light no matter what culture I'm living in. But we're swimming in the waters of our culture to such a degree that it's hard for us to live as though there's another reality. It's hard for us to live like that other reality is actually more true than the one that we can see and taste and touch all around us. So you've got the world that you live in that's feeding you a narrative of what's true and important and good and what the good life looks like. You have your own flesh your own self, your own desires that are distorted by sin and the enemy will use those desires and he'll take legitimately good things in this life and he'll distort them for his purposes. The world, the flesh, and the devil and all of it is attempting to lure us towards death one way or another. I wanna keep moving on the first thing that we looked at is what is evil's aim. It's to kill, to kill, steal, and destroy. It's to entice us, to lure us. And friends, all of us have our own unique menu of lures that we're all susceptible to. And they're individual to you as they are to me. And the enemy knows which each one of ours is. The, the enemy knows exactly what squid to dangle in front of us to get us to bite. All of us have that, and the aim is to destroy our lives. Number two, where is evil aiming? I, this thought struck me so strong this week. As I was studying Ephesians, looking at the, the bigger picture of this entire book, here's, here's what I believe. Where is evil aiming? Evil is aiming at you. At you. Evil is personal, individual, and cultural, but it's all aiming at you, and that's why, I hope you can read this, I'm not sure if it's too small, but your life is made up of a whole lot of different stuff, and, and the enemy is going after, he's going after your self-image, your heart, your desires, the idols, he's using different good things in this world to pull you away from God, he's going after how you look at money and use your money, he's going after your sexuality, He's going after your identity, your thoughts, your words. He's going after your marriage, your kids, your family. He's going after your career, your friendships, your purpose in life. Where is evil aiming? At every aspect of your life. But he wants to start with your heart, with your desires. If he can, if he can get you there, if he can deceive you in your thoughts and your mind, 
he can lure you in and entice you, then he can ruin your life. And the whole way he's ruining it, you can be thinking, man, this is great. I'm having the best time. Thought about one of my favorite movies because there's this, this word that Paul uses that we can't miss in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes. I looked up that word schemes and here's what it means. Just the simple Webster dictionary definition of a scheme. It's a large-scale, systematic plan or arrangement for attaining a particular object, a.k.a. stealing. A scheme is usually used in a, in a negative context when it comes to stealing. There's a, there's a large-scale plan to get an object, right? Or putting a particular idea into effect, which is convincing, and I thought about this because Paul is saying, I want you to be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. And I thought about one of my favorite movies, Ocean's Eleven. Man, what a great movie. Danny Ocean, George Clooney. You got Brad Pitt. You have an all-star cast. And the, the aim, right, the goal that these guys have and, and gals, they all come together. You've got people working on the inside. You've got tech people. You've got the mastermind putting the whole scheme together. But their aim, their goal, is to steal a lot of money from three casinos on the same night. The MGM Grand, the Bellagio, the Bellagio, I can't remember. Three of them, the big ones, in Vegas. $160 million they're going for. And it's such an intricate plan. The whole goal is to throw off the casino owner so that he's unaware of what's happening. They use fake videos. They got people walking, crawling through air vents. They've got people that are, you know, cracking the codes to the vaults. They've got technicians that are setting up bombs to blow open safes. And the whole time they're scheming this elaborate plan to take all this money. And I thought about it. Here's what you need to know. Evil aims for the largest return on its investment. Evil aims for the largest return on investment. If, if evil is going to lure you, to attack you, to take you out, it's going to attack you in your marriage, in your family. It's gonna come after your kids. It's gonna attack your relationships, your friendships, your work environments. It's going to attack the deep desires of your heart around money, around sexuality, around how you view yourself in the world. It's going to try to distort, deceive, lie, devour. Friends, evil is going to go after the things that matter to us most and are most important to us. It aims... For the, for the jackpot, for the heist, for the most valuable things because it knows, man, if I, can, if I can take that part of their life out, if I can take that person out, if I can destroy that marriage or that family or whatever it is, man, the ripple effect of that will be huge. So be on alert. That's why Paul 
says, look, you're living life right now in the messy middle. Yes, chapter one was all about the blessings that we have in Christ. If you remember back, all the way back to March or February, chapter one, Paul says you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You're redeemed. You're forgiven by grace. You're saved by grace. He says you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul, it doesn't feel like that. Feels like I'm seated in my car in a traffic jam on Highway 50 and I'm running late. He goes, no, there's a spiritual reality. You've been raised from death to life. You're a new creation in Christ. He goes, now buckle up, put on the armor of God, get ready for a fight. Because evil is trying to destroy you, to take you out. It's aiming at, and he goes into it, remember? He goes into the relationship between Jew and Gentile. This strained cultural relationship. He goes, I want to teach you how to love people that are hard to love. He goes into marriages. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Lay down your life for her. He goes, dads, don't provoke your kids to anger. Children, honor your father and mother. He talks about working relationships. He says, look, be on guard. The reason he's talking about marriage and family and relationships, and he gets into covetousness, greed, and sexuality as well. The reason he gets into those things is he says, look, evil is aiming at that. That's where you need armor. That's where you need protection from heaven. I want to close with this, the last thing, and the keys can come out with this. The final question, when will evil strike. When will evil strike? There were a couple verses here that stood out to me with this one. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, again, withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. So first, when will evil strike? Well, on the evil day. Uh, we've all had that day, amen, somebody. You're like, oh my gosh, if one more thing goes wrong on this day, I'm already at my limit, I'm already at the edge. Every trigger that's ever been triggered in my life is triggered at this very moment. I can't handle another thing, and now that happened. That's the evil day. That's what it feels like. And Paul goes, look, you need something special to make it through that day. <laughs> you need the armor from heaven to make it through that day. And it's not to say that you won't have an evil day or two at which you don't get totally taken out and you, you backslide and you stumble and you fall. Those days are gonna happen too. But he goes, be aware when it's coming and when they're gonna happen. He goes on and I love this. He says, okay, when is evil gonna strike? Uh, in all circumstances all the time, uh, take up your shield of faith. So that means every day, all the time, everywhere, with which you can extinguish all, like all circumstances, all the flaming darts of the evil one. When should you pray? When should we pray, right? When is the evil gonna strike? Okay, pray at, okay, all times. All times in the spirit with how much prayer? All prayer and supplication to that end. And then he says it right here, and I love this. Keep alert with perseverance. Keep watch through the night. Don't fall asleep on your watch. 
Peter says it like this. He goes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. When do lions prowl? When do they stalk? When do they attack? Who do they attack? Those that are injured already, those who are in the midst of the evil day, those who are separated from the rest of the herd. They, they attack, a lion attacks when you least expect it, in the night. Or maybe, I mean, every time I've watched National Geographic, it seems like the gazelles or the antelope or whatever they are, they're just chilling. They're having a little snack in the afternoon and the lion is stalking up through the tall grass. They have no idea they're about to get pounced on until it jumps at them. He goes, it's the same way. You need to be alert and on guard at all times because evil is after the things in your life that will take you out and your family out and your marriage out and all these sort of things out. And then after it takes you out, do you know what it's gonna do? This is what Revelation 12 says, and we're closing here. Stick with me, don't miss this. After it takes you out, after you stumble and fall, evil will accuse you. You're a mess. Can't believe you fell for that one. Can't believe you went after that lure again, got you again. You should know by now there are hooks in that thing. You should know that's attached to a rod and a reel that's gonna devour you. Oh, you're a joke. God doesn't love you anymore. He's done with you. You're too far gone. Give up, stay down. Don't even try again. This whole faith, religion, Jesus thing, it's over now. Stay down. Paul has something to say to that too. He says it in Romans 8. When the accuser accuses, friends, don't miss this. When he comes with accusations, after you've fallen on the evil day, after he's aimed at the one thing that you knew he was aiming at and you fell for it and you got taken out and you stumbled and you fell, here's what Paul says. He says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against you, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can separate you from the love of God? God. Did you catch what Paul said? Yes, there is one that accuses you night and day before the throne of God. Revelation 12, read it. The accuser of the Christians, the accuser of those who are weak and stumbling and falling. But Romans 8 goes, it doesn't matter what charge he brings. Jesus died on the cross for you. There is no religious path into heaven. There's not enough prayers you can pray. There's not enough good deeds. There aren't enough love the 50 weeks you can serve in to make this thing right with God. God had to come to earth, die for you on a cross and say, it's a gift of grace. And now no one can bring an accusation against you. No one, no one, it's called grace. So get up. 
Yeah, I hear all the accusations that he's bringing against you, but I'm looking at the Father, I'm interceding for you, and I'm saying, oh, Father, I paid for that one. Paid for the next one too, and the one before that. Every accusation the enemy brings, Jesus has an answer for. And it doesn't matter how many times you've bit that lure, how many times you've been reeled in, how many times you have stumbled and fallen. The entire point of this that Paul is trying to say, he says, friends, there's an enemy, he's after you, his aim is to destroy you, to accuse you, discourage you. Stand in the grace of God. Stand on faith in Jesus Christ. That's why every piece of the armor basically is just a different aspect of the gospel. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the belt of truth. It's just the gospel. He's like, you wanna stand through all the evil days when you get taken out? You better stand on the gospel, not your own righteousness, not your own deeds, not your own actions, not your own worthiness. You need to stand on Christ. Amen? Friends, here's what I know. We need Jesus. The enemy is a liar. He hates you, hates me, wants to take us out. Now we know where he's aiming, we know what he's after. Let's stand therefore in the strength of God's might. Please come next week, we're gonna jump into the actual armor of God where we look at what it means to stand in the strength of God against the schemes of the enemy. But right now, we're gonna close by taking communion together. If you didn't grab communion elements on the way in, they're right there in the entryways. And in a second, we're gonna pray. But I wanna do this to close. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if, if you feel like you're the person that's been too far gone, that you're too far from God's grace, and you wanna take a step of faith and salvation today, I wanna invite you to pray with me. So I wanna ask for all eyes just to be closed and all heads bowed. And if that's you and you wanna take a step of faith today and put your faith in Christ and say, Lord, I'm standing on you, not on my own righteousness anymore. I want you to put your hand in the air right now and just stick that hand up and I wanna pray with you. lead you in a prayer. It has to be your prayer, but this is the beauty of grace. The work of salvation has been done by Jesus. Your response is to receive it by faith. You just receive what Jesus did for you by faith. And so in your heart right now, I want you to talk to God and I want you to say in your heart, Lord, thank you for dying on a cross for my sins. Say to him, Lord, thank you that you loved me even while I was dead and running away from you. Say to Jesus, say, Jesus, thank you that you conquered death and rose from the grave. I believe that I'm forgiven because of your sacrifice and your resurrection. 
and just receive the gift of forgiveness and grace and new life. Say, Lord, thank you for these gifts. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.